We are in a unique place. There are 66 books in the, in the Bible, and there are only 52 weeks in a year. And so as we consider, hey, we're going to preach through and read through the entire Bible in a year, uh, it kind of gets a little bit uh, dicey, right? Which, which, which text will be included? Which, which text will be preached on? And, and some books, sadly, were left out altogether. And, when, and if we could try as we, we may, but in, you just can't get uh, 66 to, to, to become 52. And so it doesn't work. But this morning and last week, we also had the opportunity, a unique opportunity, to spend two sermons, two times together on, on Sunday morning in one book. And that book is the book of Romans. What a beautiful book it is. It's a wonderful book for us this morning as, 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 as children of God who are trying to walk in the light and understanding what it is that God has done in our hearts it's unique for us, us as a new church as we consider what God has done for us, even this year, the ways that he's blessed us. It's not over yet as we continue to, to read and finish out our reading plan, but I'm excited about this morning finishing up the, the two-part series, if you will, there, the sub-series, a part of Called Out there in Romans. And so last week we looked at the height of depravity. We looked at the height of depravity. We looked at how, how wicked man really is. Now he had come to that place and to that point. What all was entailed in that? We saw that the depravity of God, or the depravity of man rather, incited the wrath of God. Yeah, that was a big mistake. But it incited the wrath of God. And to the level that it really, it really did, we, 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 we would look foolishly to find God's wrath any more clearly displayed than in the cross of Christ. See, God's wrath so clearly displayed there. And so we see the height of depravity and, and what it calls for there at the cross, but there at the cross we also see the depth of his love. So this morning we'll take a look at Romans chapter 8 and we're going to dive into this idea of the love of God. So we talk about good news often. The, the gospel is that. It's good news. And so we see the wrath of God on those who sin against him displayed on the cross. But then we also see the depth of his love for those for whom Christ died. Both clearly displayed. And so I want to invite you, if you've got your Bible, Romans chapter 8. We'll read together verses 31 to 39. So if you'll follow along there in 31. The Bible says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also give him graciously, or with him give us graciously all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. And more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and who indeed is interceding for us. And who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a beautiful truth this morning. May God bless the reading of his word. God, we truly ask that this morning, that you would bless it. God, that you would guide me as I work through this text, Spirit, that you would, that you would teach us. As a result of this, uh, this text and our time together this morning, that we truly will be more conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. That we will be brought to the place as, as we close this book, that we would raise our voices to worship you because you alone deserve it. Jesus, again, we pray these things in your name. Amen. I want to ask you a question. This is just honesty time for me, and maybe you can relate. Have you ever been in a conversation with somebody, maybe even a serious one, life or death, or uh, you know, just terribly uh, weighty, and you zoned out. You ever been there? You just 
You, you don't even know what happened the last 30 seconds of the conversation. You're not even sure if it's been more than that. And you don't, you're in this weird place. You're like, I, I don't know what to do at this point in time, right? It's sad. It, it's been a common occurrence in my life. Uh, and I'm not going to say who, who specifically with, although my wife is very gracious to me. Very forgiving. I, at the same time, I'm still very uh, staunch and will not back down. She, she didn't tell me some things, and we, I've got a list of things that she actually never did say. Um, but maybe you're tired. Maybe you slip into a semi-sleep state. Maybe you have a lot on your mind. You're stressed out. Uh, maybe you got the, the, the work and uh, the boss and the family and the holidays and all these things coming down, and it's overwhelming. Or maybe you're just easily distracted, and you just notice the squirrel, and it's, it's, it's all downhill from there. Now, you're not really sure where, where, how to proceed. Do you admit your mistake? Depending on the context, it could be really, really bad that you didn't hear anything they just said. By the way, this has never happened to any of you. But with me, I've, I've heard everything that you've ever said. But what do you do? Do you admit you zoned out? Do you ask for a, a, a qualifying or, or a, a, just some clarification on something? That way maybe they'll, in that one clarifying question, they'll reveal the entirety of the context. Well, whatever you do, uh, you've got to proceed, right? This morning, we're kind of jumping into a situation like that. There in verse 31, we can't just read the whole book of Romans and then work our way through it this morning. We wouldn't be able to do that. And so as we drop into Romans chapter 8, verse 31, we, we drop in right as Paul is asking a question. It's a rhetorical question. And he says, what shall we say to these things? And, and as it's, uh, it's 11, 12 this morning and it's on, the, it's on your weekend, it's a Sunday, and you might be like, well, what, what else, what, what shall I say to what things? We want to, as we read the text this morning, we, we want to work through these verses, 31 to 39. But before we do that, we've got to look at these things. What are these things? And so the question I'll ask you this morning is, what shall you say to these things? What's your response to these things? Well, in honesty, you need to know what these things are. And so if you will, just jump back with me. This might be difficult if you're taking notes for you to follow along, and I'll try to be as clear as possible. We won't be exhaustive through these first 30 verses, but we'll, we'll work, work our way through quickly and see some of the high points. So in verses 1 and 2, we see in our condemnation, he gives us freedom. So condemnation means to, to, to judge somebody as definitely guilty and therefore subject to punishment. It's the wrapping of the, ga- of the gavel on the desk. This is condemnation. And we are condemned in our state apart from Christ. And yet, here we see in verses 1 and 2 that in our condemnation, we have been given freedom. And so when we have been sentenced, after the sentencing, we have been released and given freedom. And so the arrest has occurred, the trial is over, the judgment is handed down, and the punishment is then scheduled to be exacted but for the Christian, the, the keys are, uh, are brought forth, the door is open, and the condemnation has been reversed, and the guilty party, the saints of God, they go free. So then this bold statement, there is now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ. There's no prison that can hold us. There's no ju- sentence that can be applied to us. And our condemnation, those who are in Christ... We receive freedom. What do you say to that? That's one of the things that Paul's saying. Well, what do you say to that? So what do you say to that? Seriously, think about this morning. What does your heart say when you hear those things? That the judgment of God, the wrath of God because of your sinfulness, if you're in Christ, has been taken away, nailed to the cross of Christ, and instead you have been given freedom. And not just freedom from the sentence, but freedom from the very power that caused you, that led you to that place to do those things that brought you condemnation. We've been given freedom from these things. So what do you say to that? Well, we celebrate. We worship God. And so let this be a sermon full, a text full of praise for God. Let your heart just well up as a saint of God. And if you're not Christian this morning if you can't if you can't say that I've never experienced or received this condemnation being set to the side and freedom being given to me and the door being swung open then then pay attention and long for it this morning pray for it because here in this text this morning we'll see that Christ is offering to you this freedom this is why we call it good news and so in our condemnation he gives freedom what do you say to that 
<laughs> That's awesome. Truly, if anything in this life is awesome, that is awesome. Look in verse 10. In our sin, he gives righteousness. Where we've racked up sin, and he, he takes away our sin and he gives us righteousness. This is the work of Christ. We all are capable of doing one thing on our own, and that is sin. We're stuck in our sin. We're dead in our sin. If we've been saved, which means, again, to be in Christ, we now have Christ's righteousness. This has been called the great exchange. That on the cross of Christ, the wrath of God was on our sin, towards our sin, on Jesus Christ, because he took that from us. And what did he give us in exchange? He gave us his very righteousness. What do you say to that? What do you say to that as you consider the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and what he has done for those who are in Christ? He gives us his righteousness where we had sin. In verses 10 and 10 through 11, you can see that he, he, in our death, he gives life. Another great, wonderful exchange that in our death, he gives life. There was no hope for us. Indeed, we're dead in our sins spiritually and damned to eternal death and separation from God. But again, those who are in Christ, who have the spirit of God living in them, will be resurrected. And even now, we experience this resurrected life and this resurrection hope. Again, what do you say to that? Those who are dead in their sins, being made alive, quickened together with Christ. This is a beautiful thing. This is a wonderful thing. Last week was a heavy week as we considered the depth, the the height rather, of our depravity. This morning we're seeing the depth of God's love. So in our death, he, he gives life. Verses 18 and also 24 and 25, we see in our suffering, he gives hope. And this is something that maybe, maybe is a little more real to us. For whatever reason, sadly, we forget of what Christ has saved us from. We forget about the, being brought from death into life. And that our sin has been exchanged for righteousness. For whatever reason, some, somehow we forget these things. But we live in this place here, in this place of suffering, longing for hope. And each of us in different ways and forms and fashions, walking different roads, all tasting this bitter cup of suffering in this broken world filled with broken people who sin, even those who are in Christ, sinning against one another. We live in this suffering, and yet we have been promised hope. So this life, it's, diff- it's difficult. There's no doubt about that. There is real loss. There's real pain. This world has fallen, and everywhere we look, we see destruction and the effects of the curse of sin. You can only bear so much to read the newspaper and to watch the news. Every corner, our corners here in Washington County, we see the effects of this. Many people suffer. Even in these chairs this morning, many of you are suffering as you walk in. And perhaps you tighten up, you put on a brave face, and you come in here. Maybe it's a physical suffering, a physical pain, a physical loss. Maybe it's a mental or a spiritual, whatever it is. Each and every one of us are walking and experiencing and seeing the suffering. And yet we have been given a promise. And that promise brings us hope. It's promise that we will one day experience a life full of glory and pure joy as we're united with Christ forever and free from our own sin and free from suffering. This is our hope. That one day all tears, think about this, all tears one day will be wiped away. And we'll bask in his presence forevermore. And you say, well, I'm not suffering today. Sad news is, one day you will. And there have been days, even recently, I'm sure, where you have. And again, as we look around, we don't have to look too far to see pain on, on faces. And to think that one day, one day all of these things will be a lie. All the pain that we experience as we'll experience even now will be not true in this beautiful language that he will wipe away every tear from our eyes what do you say to that and yes we walk through suffering and we walk through persecution and we walk through tribulation and struggles those things are real 
But we do it, and we recognize this promise that these things that we experience now are light and momentary, and they're not to even be compared with the glory that one day will be revealed. And we walk by faith towards that glory, and it's a beautiful thing. Now, what do you have to say to that? Think about that. That's a beautiful thing. This is a promise, and so Paul asks us, in light of that, what do you have to say? Praise be to God. He doesn't owe us this. In verse 26, in our weakness, he sends the Spirit. In our weakness, he sends the Spirit. While we await for the day when all things will be made new, we grow weary, we grow weak in ourselves, and we struggle. We often don't even know how to pray. We can't bring ourselves to the place where we would even go to the Word of God when that's the very thing that we need. And so what happens? The Spirit of the living God, who has been sent to us to comfort us and to strengthen us we sense his presence even this morning we see that what do you have to say to that the fact that in our weakness he knew we would be weak and his spirit has been sent to comfort and to come along even praying for us when we don't even know how to pray and interceding for us when we don't even know what we've done that day this is the gift of the spirit and our weakness he has been sent so think about these truths so far that we looked at. This is, this is just up to verse 26. Now look at verse 28. It says this, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. This is perhaps one of the most famous and well-known scriptures in all of the Bible. Most beloved uh, there at the top by Christians, and, and rightfully so. Because as we walk through this world, yes, we face suffering. Yes, we face struggles. Yes, we face weakness, and we know that we have this promise that all things, good things, bad things, hard things, difficult things, easy things, joyful things, terrible, sad things, they all work together for good. There's one piece that's often misunderstood or or left out, and that's that to those who are called according to his purpose. These are those who are in Christ. The promise is... That every single thing that we face, if you are in Christ, that God is working that for his glory and for your good. That's part of that promise. Part of that hope that we have. So in condemnation that we sense, that's part of all things. In our death, that's part of all things. In the suffering that we experience, in our sin, in our weakness, all of those things and more. God is working through them. He's working them together for good. And what is the good? Part of it is freedom, life, hope, righteousness, and the giving of his very spirit. All of these things, God is working together for our good and for his glory. So just practically speaking, when we as Christians, when we are faced with pain, when we experience suffering, we have this hope that it's not meaningless. That God is using all of these things, the small part of our story, he is using to bring glory to himself and so that we can one day even experience this fullness of joy that we so long for. Again, who's this promise for? It's for those whom he called. Verse 29 expounds that. Some of you are getting nervous. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That. These, these two verses here are often referred to as the golden chain of theology. The golden chain of salvation. I'm going to break down these words quickly for you as we just passing, move through here. First word that I want to talk about is foreknew. And the, the term does in a sense, a, 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 an aspect or a component of it is a future sense. God knew before it took place. But it's not a reference to God only knowing about certain people in a certain group and in contrast to other groups. Oftentimes that's what this, this word is thought to be. Oh, God knew certain people. Well, God, I don't know about you, but the God that I read in the scriptures, it says that God foreknew everybody. And so it can't just mean that because God has foreknown every single person 
God's never been surprised by the birth of any children. While many of us here this morning would say, yes, I've been surprised. God never has been surprised. He's known every single time he foreknew every one of us. So what is he saying here? Let the scripture speak. God knows all. And more importantly, and more specifically, that he had an intimate relationship with a certain faction or a certain group of people. In fact, it's, it's the love there that we see, this foreknow that he has for certain individuals. This Semitic sense of affection is, is what is the idea rather than just a mere mental sense of knowing. There was an affection, a, a foreknowing, a fore-relationship. A Other passages refer to these folks, these, these uh, individuals that he foreknew as the elect. You see, God looks down through the corridors of time. Yes, he does do that, in a sense. And he does see everyone who has or will exist. And out of that group, there are some that he foreknew. There are some that he loved. Even 1 John 4.19 says, We love him because he first loved us. The only reason that anybody would ever love God in, in our state of depravity is because he first loved us us so he foreknew the next word i want to look at quickly is predestined this is this is a bad one right this is the hot one there's no fancy translation work neat required to understand this word it simply means to come about a decision beforehand that god has come about a decision beforehand before what before any action before any birth Unrelated even to for working of any individual, God has worked and he has decided who will enter into a relationship with him and then determine certain things about them. And so foreknew, those whom he foreknew and pre, he loved before time, those he predestined. Then the next term that we'll look at is called. This calling, it's an internal, specific, and effectual call. It's not, it's, not, it's, it's not just an invitation being issued, but it also, this invitation also provides the ability and the willingness to respond positively. This calling, it's an invitation that we receive, it's specific and it's effectual because when we receive the call of God, we cannot deny it. And when we receive the call of God, we have the ability even in that call to obey the command and the call. Think of John 11. Lazarus, hardly a more beautiful example of this power and this specific working and calling of of God. There he is, Lazarus, he's laying dead in the tomb, unable to do anything. Jesus calls out to him specifically, by name, and tells him to come forth. I want you to know that I can specifically call dead people to come back to life. I can do it but they won't come back to life. (laughs) You can do it. Maybe that's somewhat humorous, but maybe it's not. There's been the the, the longing in our hearts at a funeral or on a deathbed to even say, Lazarus, come forth. And yet there's no power in that invitation. It is an invitation and it is specific, but it is not effectual. And yet when God calls out to dead things to come to life, they obey. So this calling that we see, that we read of here, is specific and it's effectual. Had Jesus named any other dead person anywhere on the face of this earth, immediately they would have come forth. Immediately. Some of them stinking a little more than Lazarus. This calling was effectual. Look at the next term, justified. Briefly, it's, it's the judicial act by which God declares sinful men and women to be in right standing before him. And whoever has been called by God, this effectual call will also be justified after they have been called and therefore respond in faith. They'll be justified. Nobody comes to God on their own righteousness. Anybody who does come to God, who receives this call, comes to him based on Christ's righteousness. They place their faith in the work of Jesus on the cross. And they're justified. 
And after that, the next term is glorified. To be glorified in its simplest understanding means to be made like Jesus. To be glorified in just the simplest way to put it is just to be conformed into the image of Christ. Related to sanctification, it's a process in our lives. And we pray even this morning that as we look at the text, as it's preached, that each of us will be conformed into the image of Christ and thereby slowly glorified. And yet it's interesting that Paul, when he uses this term, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he uses it in the past tense. It's completed, it's perfect, perfected. Here, this is what Paul's saying. It's as good as done. Your glorification, those whom he foreknew, he predestined, he called, he justified, and now he glorified. And even though the glorification is not complete, Paul is making a point here and he's saying, it's as good as completed. Not by works of righteousness, which you have done, but according to his mercy, he has saved us. Think of Philippians. Paul says there to the church in Philippians chapter 1, he says, I always pray with joy, being confident of this, this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Paul is saying, whatever God begins in your life, this work of justification and glorification, it will be completed. There's no doubt about it. I believe this text is clear this morning. God has sovereignly chosen some to save. With words like predestined, it's easy to get today's church and maybe even some of you to get riled up and to get at arms. And Let me just say this. Today's not a sermon about Calvinism or Arminianism. Let me just ask you this. If, If when we look at this text, if any emotion springs up in you other than just pure worship, then you've you've misunderstood it. You see, Paul wasn't here saying, I'm going to show these guys where the truth is. That's not his goal this morning. His goal this morning was to encourage and to draw our hearts to a place of worship. I pray that that's exactly what it does. That as you consider how salvation has even unfolded in your own life that it wouldn't bring you to a place of self-worship or pride in any way but that it would ultimately just lay you low and raise Christ up as you consider the love that he has extended to you the point that I one of the biggest points I think Paul is trying to make out of that golden chain passage or subpart there is that you had no part in it and therefore you can't lose what you did not receive you didn't obtain you didn't ask for it it was given to you not based on works of righteousness which you have done but according to his mercy and according to his love what he has saved he will sustain he will secure and that is your hope this morning that is our hope that what he has given to us freely he will keep He's working all things together for our good and for his glory. He's done all this of his own accord and not because of anything that you or I have ever done or will do. And in light of this, the question is asked to you, how do you respond? How do you respond? What will you say to these things? Everything that we've looked at here in chapter eight, all of Romans all together and all of the gospel collectively revealed through scripture they find it, it finds its antecedent and fulfillment in the cross of Christ. So, let me say this. Here's, here's, if I could say one point, if you could take it home with you this morning. If you're looking for the love of Christ, if you're looking for meaning, if you're looking for, for this, whether or not God even cares about you, you need not look farther than the cross of Christ to see the love of God. You need not look farther than the cross of Christ to see the love of God. And while we'll be in Romans chapter 8, I want you to suspend Romans chapter 5, verse number 8, in your mind that God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so keep that in your mind this morning. We need not look farther than the cross of Christ to see the love of God. That is where he most clearly and definitively displayed his love for his bride. So as we think of the love of God in our hearts this morning, and we, if with joy we well up with worship as we consider all of these truths laid out clearly in Romans chapter 8, 
I also want to warn you as a shepherd of some lies that will sneak in and perhaps they already have that will maybe remove that sense of joy, that sense of worship, and that experience of God's love emanating from the cross of Christ. Paul, he senses them no doubt as well and through the Spirit's power we'll look, walk through these this morning. And so let me give them for you. Four lies. One is that we, that there is opposition towards our salvation. The second is that there is an accusation that would stand against us. The third is that there is condemnation against those who are in Christ. That there is, that's another lie. These are all lies. And fourth, that we can and maybe even will be separated from the love of God. All four of these are lies. Let's look at the first one. Here in verse 31 i make a statement before we jump into it that there is no opposition to the salvation that has been extended to us through Christ. There's none. Verse 31, he asks another question. What shall we say then to these things? If God, or it's the same question. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? This is a good question. Many of us, we may not be able to verbalize it, but we have this sense within us that there is something that will derail us. Maybe if you're like me, you have a a self-destructive streak within you. And you think, ah, I don't know. As much as God loves me, as much as the scriptures make that plain, maybe I still can mess this up. Somehow I will be able to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. Somehow I'll be able to stop this whole thing. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? One of the most common lies that we're faced with in in, in the church today and in our lives individually is that the struggles that we deal with and the pain that we endure is greater than the God that we serve. Somehow the the pain that we experience and and the, the situation that we find ourselves in is greater than the God that we serve. When we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we are tempted to fear evil as if it will defeat us, as if it will tear us from our loving Father's arms. We say that God is greater than all things, but maybe not our certain circumstances that we find ourselves in there that you do this morning or your plight. Maybe God's not greater than that. Of course, we would not say, this, this text is saying, if God is for us, who can be against us? You, you could say, well, there are no enemies then, right? That's not true. We absolutely face enemies. We spoke of that. Much of the suffering and the pain that we experience on a daily basis comes from the enemy. I should say enemies, because there are many. Enemies of God, enemies of the church, they exist and they are active. And you need not look far or deep in history, church history, even from the beginning, from the birth of the church, even to now, we see God's people suffering, loss of life, loss of limb, loss of family, in fact, history is literally a, a light with the burned at the stake martyrs that line it. They all testify to this fact that, that, that suffering is a real thing and that there are real, true enemies. Even today, it's commonly reported that Christians are among the most persecuted in the world today, among religious people. This is a fact. There are real enemies with real names. While many of you may not be facing death this morning, afraid that in some way our lives will be snuffed out or the lives of your children will. As if we have some enemy prowling in the woods, but at the same time, many of us feel opposition because of our faith by our own family members, from our coworkers, from our neighbors, or maybe even friends or our spouse, God forbid. We can really sense an oppression or even an attack from the people that can be closest to us. Maybe that's you here this morning. Well, you would say, well, I know that there are enemies. I know that there are those who would attempt to stand against us, against our faith. Besides mankind, there are two other real enemies. One is Satan. He's a real person, a real being that walks about, the Bible says, seeking whom he may devour. Moms and dads, aunts and uncles, draw the children close. Satan is an enemy. He is active and he's alive. And he wants nothing more than destroy our families. 
and to drag our children off into the night and to devour them. Fathers, men, you as well, we have a real enemy. And so we are on guard and we look. We watch out together because we have a real enemy. And there are those who would attempt to stand against the plans of God. I said uh, there are two other enemies besides fellow mankind, and that's Satan and then also ourselves. This is something that we, uh, I mentioned to or alluded to a minute ago. The self-destructive streak. The sin that remains, the flesh that we're comprised of, it so often is an enemy as well. It's an enemy within. And so there are real enemies to the church. There are real enemies to the saints of God. There's no argument there. They are dangerous. They have evil plans for us. And all of them, though, are ineffective when it comes to standing against God. The plans that he has for us, he will fulfill. There is no enemy that can stand against God. And so if God is for us, who can be against us? Answer, no one and nothing. This is something that we walk in by faith. Now this truth can be misunderstood and often it is. That, and so we have to pay careful attention not to, to fall into this self-seeking, self-serving, glorifying our, of our, our sin type of church or people. It does not speak, when it says God is for us, it doesn't speak of God having a proposition regarding any of your sinful dispositions. That's not what it's speaking about. Some of you, you love that passage. I remember as a kid even hearing that, that God is for me. He's on my side. And so the next time that I pick a fight with somebody, he's gonna, he's gonna have my back. How foolish. God, God will have no part in idolatry. And he won't walk with us, even as we pretend and even imagine to think that we are on the Lord's side. He will not stand behind our idolatrous agenda. He won't do it for one second. So many times, even throughout history, Christians have, or those who would call themselves Christians, have claimed to have the Lord on their side. And they've done things that the Lord would have no part in. So this is a warning for us. This is, not, this is not for us to say that God is about us, that God is all about you. That, uh, there is, is some sense of truth to that. But how dangerous it is to think that God is for us and all of our sinful desires and whims. So in every area and on every front, that opposition comes against the plans of God in your life and in the lives of, this, of, the, lives of the people that comprise this church, there will not be victory. Nothing can stop the will of God, and he will accomplish it. So remember, even suffering is not to be viewed as opposition against God ultimately, but as the very tool that God uses to bring about good in our lives. So even the attacks of the enemy that God will somehow, that's one of the things that God will use in our lives to bring about good, and that's difficult for us to believe. Some of you right now are living in frustration. You're living in real pain. And you're looking at God and thinking, is, is this opposition against you? Or is it, are, the, are the weapons formed against us actually prospering? I, I, I feel that they are. And I would call you this morning to, in faith, put that to the side. And believe that God is using even the attacks of the enemy for good in our lives. Isaiah 54, if you're taking notes, write this down. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. And you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication from me declares the Lord. This applies to us. So there's no opposition. There is zero opposition that will stand against the saints of God. Another lie is that accusations will stand. Point number two, there is no accusation. There is no accusation. Look at verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. The answer to that question is a lot of people. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Again, related to this issue of opposition and the enemy, there are many people who will bring a charge against God's elect. Most of the accusations that we hear, uh, by the way, in our lives will be from Satan, but they'll come from other places as well. Imagine this morning... Maybe it's not so difficult. Maybe you live in this place. 
Or you can consider and you remember that there are people in this world that know something that you've done that's terrible and heinous. I'm sure there's not a one of us in here this morning that would say there is a, there is a living, breathing person in this world today, maybe even in this room, that knows something terrible about you. And you just pray to God that they keep it to themselves. Maybe they're far away. Maybe you've known somebody that's gone to their grave, maybe with your secret, and you've maybe even breathed a sigh of relief. That's not uh, an odd theme or an uncommon theme in, in stories. Why? Because there are those who will bring a charge against God's elect. There really are. Oftentimes, it's not just those around us. It's not just Satan, but again, oftentimes, it's us. And we, we fall prey to this lie that there are accusations that will stand against God's elect. That's not true. That, that our God is, is not able to defend us because our sin is too great or that he can't justify us because it's too egregious or terrible. These are lies. And there's nothing that you can be accused of if you are a Christian, if you are truly in Christ this morning. There is nothing that you can be accused of, whether it's true or not, that Jesus has not already paid for. We've said that before. Rest in that this morning, church. You can never be accused of anything. Nothing can ever come to light and stick that Jesus didn't already pay for. Look back at verse 33. No one can bring a charge against the elect because they were, uh, because of, because they were righteous. right? Why are we justified? How are we justified? Not by our own works. But the reason why these charges won't stand is because they're true. But we're not justified because of our righteousness or lack thereof. We're justified because of Christ's righteousness. And so who is it that justifies? Why won't they stick? Why can somebody not bring a, a charge against the elect of God? Because we are saved by Christ's righteousness and not our own. So in so far as Christ remains righteous, guess what? We remain righteous. There's no chance of Christ not being righteous. So therefore, we are at ease. We can enjoy this gift of justification. So this promise, it applies to you. Even, even your own accusations against yourself, they don't stand up against God's righteousness. There's no higher court to appeal to could justify us or even condemn us as we'll look at it in just a moment. God has handed down his decision and his church has been justified. And so no sin that you've committed in the past or that you will commit in the future, for those who are in Christ, it will not stand. There's another lie that we see in verse 34 that there's condemnation. We looked at it in verse number one and now we see it again. This is a theme throughout the book of Romans. He asks the question, who is to condemn? Similar to justification. It's similar to to bringing a charge. But a charge is just a charge. It's just an accusation. But condemnation is actually the handing down of the sentence. So who is to condemn? Well, it says Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Is there condemnation? No, there is not. This is what we say to that. There is no condemnation. And this lie is just a natural progression of the previous ones, right? There's opposition in my life. Why is there suffering? Why is there pain? Why am I experiencing these difficulties? I know why. I know why. Because I've been accused. And after after the accusation stands, we believe this lie, it follows that we would be condemned. You see this natural progression. We look at the bad things that take place in our lives and we don't see them as God working together, things for our good and his glory, but instead we look at them as some type of a judgment because of an accusation now handed down to us. This is a lie. To condemn means to judge somebody as definitely guilty and then you give them the punishment. And while Satan would love to condemn, it says, who is to condemn? Who is able to condemn? Satan cannot condemn. He doesn't write the rules. 
He's not able to wrap the the gavel, the hammer on the desk. He's unable to do those things. While others in your life, maybe even you feel the, the need to try to condemn yourself. Maybe you try to condemn others. You have no right or ability to do that. Only God can truly condemn, and he has. Judgment has been handed down. And yet it was not born by you or me. It was born by Christ alone on the cross. That's what he says there in verse 34. Who is to condemn? Well, it's God that condemned, that can, that can condemn. And who has he condemned? Jesus Christ, his son, who died. Why did he die? It wasn't some arbitrary death. He died at the hands of evil men and for our sin, the sins of the church, the sins of the elect, those whom he foreknew. So Satan's not able to do that. Why? Double jeopardy. Can't be charged for the same thing. I'm not trying to import that, that thought or principle or law into the text here this morning, but it is a true statement. We cannot be charged for something that God himself has already judged. He's, Jesus died in our place for these things. He paid our debt of sin, and now there is no condemnation. He took it all. And now in its place, he has a receipt of full payment. So there's no condemnation for any of us. What's more, Paul says that Jesus rose from the dead, which, by the way, is a verification of God's acceptance of his payment for our sins. And now he even stands, it says, in our defense, interceding for us against all of Satan's accusations. And so as he throws accusations, God says, yes, this is true. And Jesus says, I paid for that. So we are justified And there is no condemnation. There is no condemnation. What do you say to that, church? Does that not nourish your soul? Does that not humble you and encourage you and draw you to this place of worship? The warning here this morning is that suffering has a discreet way of leading you to believe that God's grace grace in suffering is actually condemnation. We get confused and we think, The things that I'm dealing with right now are because God hates me or because he's judging me. We're tempted to think that. But that's that's believing this lie that there is condemnation for those who are in Christ. And that God's not using the tough things in our lives to bring about good in our lives. Remember, Jesus has the receipt marked paid in full. There is no condemnation, as verse 1 says. No condemnation. First John, if this is something that you're struggling with right now, I encourage you this week, spend time in First John. Read through John 1, John, 1 John 1, 1 John 2. He repeatedly informs us that we have Jesus as an advocate. And if, if we sin, and we will sin, that we are to confess our sins and trust Jesus for forgiveness. And by the way, if you're here this morning and you say, am I part of the elect? Am I, am I part of the, these that Jesus, that God foreknew? Have you repented of your sins and placed your faith in Jesus Christ? You see, the sign to to know whether you're in or out, that you've been called to Christ or not, is will you answer the call? And so this morning, as you feel the weight of your own sin and you say, I want to be justified, I want there to be no condemnation in my life, I want to be free from this wickedness and this terrible life and all the guilt that plagues me day in and day out, then trust Christ for forgiveness of sins. And by the way, this morning, just to be as clear as possible, to trust Christ is to repent of your sin. To see the the wickedness of the decisions that you make in your life on a daily basis and saying, instead of God being the rule in my life, my own will and desire has been the rule. And you follow that unabashedly. Repentance would mean to turn from that and to say, the sins that I've been committing, whether I think they're sins or whether I think they're not, whether society says they are or they're not, the word of God says it is, and I repent of that. I trust the work of Christ on the cross because his payment paid for my sin, and thereby I can receive righteousness. When we come to the cross and we turn from our sin, that is the, the, the demonstration of the manifestation of the effectual calling of God in the life of a human being. That you would repent, that you would trust Christ for forgiveness of sins. That call is offered to you this morning. The last lie that we'll look at briefly as we come to a close is found in verse 35, that you can be separated from the love of Christ. 
There's something out there. There's some way that this condemnation being removed now can, become, now can come back. This justification that has been given can now be rescinded. This opposition that has been removed can now come back. You can receive separation from God, which is death. Look at verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Again, I love Paul asking questions. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who? What? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Remember, the final stop in the progression of these lies is to believe that you can, in your suffering, you have been, rather, separated from God. That's a real temptation, isn't it? When you walk through the valley of the shadow of death to, to be afraid that you truly have been abandoned to whatever it is that you're dealing with. This is a real fear. And yet the scripture speaks to that. What will separate us from the love of Christ? Can, can any of these things? No. Practically, it may look like this morning somebody struggling with eternal security. The fact that the work that God would do in your life of calling you to himself could somehow be thwarted by some action that you've taken. You did not... You didn't receive justification because of any work of righteousness which you did. Thereby you can't lose it by any work of evil or unrighteousness that you do. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Nothing. Again, there's nothing that you can be accused of that Jesus didn't already pay for. There's no location on this earth that could, we could somehow re- receive less signal from God or less connection with him. Tribulation, a type of adversity common to all men cannot separate you from the love of Christ. Distress, it kind of gives you the idea of being in a confined and narrow, difficult place. Uh, the kind of place maybe relationally or, or financially that maybe you feel claustrophobic in. This is distress. Can these things separate you from the love of Christ? Of course not. Persecution, being suffering uh, because of, uh, of evil men. Inflicting some type of pain on you because of your relationship with Christ. Can that somehow remove your relationship with Christ? No. Can that separate you from him? No. Famine, no food, ultimately a financial demise. Can these things remove you from the love of Christ? No. And don't for one second think that a large or a small bank account determines your connection with Christ. This is a falsehood. This is a heresy. Related nakedness without the most, one of the most basic of human needs. Exposure, nakedness leading to peril, danger. Can this, can, this, can this separate you from the love of Christ? No, fear of death, which is what danger is, right? Peril. Ultimately, even to the point of the sword, either at the hands of your enemy or even your government, can it separate you from the love of Christ? No. It's interesting that... The sword here. Oftentimes when the government would, uh, there's a passage that says, uh, cursed is the man, even the one who hangs on a tree. Cursed is the one who hangs on a tree. Society at large, the government even, who does not bear the sword in vain, pronounces death upon you. Can even that, public shame and humiliation, your life being snuffed out, can that separate you from the love of Christ? Thank God, no, it does not. So this lie here, that you can be separated from God, says that when your pockets are full, God is pleased, and when the bills pile up, he is angry with you. That's a lie. This, it says when you're healthy, you are righteous, and when you are sick, God is judging you. That's a lie. It's not true. It says when you feel good and you're whistling, things are good, and when you're not... When you're in the emotional throes of this world, that God is against you, and that's a lie. His love is permanent. Look at verses 38 and 39. No circumstance, no force, no location, no time, past, present, or future. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. And in fact, in the face of all of these things that we face, we will be more than victorious. How can you be more than victorious? How can you like win more than win, right? You, you might think, well, you either win or you lose. Well, I think we don't want to read into this too far, but Paul's trying to say like, you're not just victorious. 
You're more than victorious. More than enough. Even to the point where the very thing that were, was meant against you doesn't even strike you and then you won, right? You get in a boxing match or you just get in a fight, right? You say, well, you should have seen the other guy. But, well, you, okay, you might have won, but it, you, you look like you took a couple hits. To be more than, more than conquerors is that even the, the, the attacks of, of the enemy, even the things that we face, somehow God uses them to not be bad for you, but to instead be good. This is more than conqueror. This is more than victorious. Even the things that are meant for our demise are actually what elevates us and brings us completion in Christ. Imagine that. This is only the, through the power of Christ and by the love of Christ. Church, listen, we've got to be encouraged in this, that there's no separation in Christ. And at no time, in no way, in no place can anybody separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus once you are his. You're secure. You are secure. What do we base all this on? Some of you might be thinking, well, you skipped a verse. I did skip a verse. Look back at verse 32. What do we base all this on? Where did all this come from? Look at at verse 32. How how can we know that we'll be more than conquerors? Because listen, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him give us graciously all things? He who would not even spare his own son to demonstrate his love for us, what else would he hold back, right? It's like like grandpa, right? Giving you that, that, that awesome classic car that he's had since he was a kid and he's restored it twice. And it's worth thousands and thousands of dollars. And he says, I'm going to give this to you, son. Here's the keys. And as he, as he gives you the keys, you're stepping back. You're just in shock. You've got the, you got the, the title in your hand. And you can't believe it. Who are you going to call? Are you going to cry? Are you just going to go get like a pillow and just go sleep in it tonight? Whatever it is, you know, what, if you look over at grandpa and he's over there, he bends down and he, he begins to pull the, 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 the valve stem covers off of the, the tires and he's like right, I'm going to keep these I hope you don't mind I'm going to keep these and he proceeds to pull out a hose right grandpa all sophisticated looking right he, 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 he bends down and he inserts that hose into the gas tank and he begins to siphon out the little bit of gas that's still in there why of course not the, the valve stems in the gas in the tank go with the gift why because if he's willing to give you this wonderful gift this car, would he not also give you the valve stem covers? Of course he would. And if Jesus has been given to us by God the Father on our behalf to die on the cross, what his most prized relationship, what, what would he withhold from us? What would he hold back from us that would not benefit us? Nothing. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also give him graciously all things with us? Of course he will. So how do we know God is pleased with us and that that we are just, just as he is? Again, we need not look farther than the cross of Christ. As we saw last week, it was the greatest display of God's wrath but also the greatest display of his love. So this week as you walk through and you face whatever it is that you'll face, remember this, that all things he won't withhold from us. And what has he not already given to us? What have, what have we not already been blessed with in his son, Jesus Christ? There was no depth that he was not willing to go to reconcile us. We see that in the cross of Christ. And again, as Romans chapter five makes clear, he demonstrated his love for us. While we were yet sinners, he died for us. It wasn't just an emotion. It's not just something he says, but it's an action that we see. It's visibly clear on the cross. The greatest gift that could ever be given. The cross of Christ demonstrates the love of God. As we close this morning, I want to read to you a song. I won't sing it. It says this, The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. And the refrain goes like this. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure. The saints and angels song will never be able to sing enough. We'll never be able to exhaust the love of God. 
I'll skip the, the second and just go right to the third for sake of time. What a beautiful graphic hymn. Could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Again, O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. May we give it a go. May we not attempt to exhaust the love of God, even this morning as we together collectively worship our God and King, Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? God, we're so thankful this morning that as we look at your word, it draws us to this place of worship. And not of ourselves, and not of the things that we see on the floor lying around us in our lives. God, that our eyes are lifted up to you. And Jesus, your word this morning has done that for us. It, it raises our eyes to you glorified this morning. God, on this high this morning, as we consider all these truths, we can look past that into this evening and tomorrow and the the rest of this week and we can see suffering and pain in the year to come and in the past. We see all these things that, 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 that draw us to look down and to lose hope and to lose heart. We pray that you would hold us fast to that point. Spirit, by your power, that even when we are weak, when we feel alone, when we feel we are in the valley of the shadow of death, that you will be near to us. And we will walk together hand in hand to, you, to the glory of God and to the good of his people. We ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.